I actually think it's been a question that's come that's come up uh, oh in meditation circles in the last couple of years does this ever change you is, has anything happened to you we now have a sufficient number of people in this country who've been meditating for a number of years there's actually a book in the bookstore called will meditation and yoga actually change your life and it's a it's a it's a, an anthology, a collection of, I think, 25 essays by 25 people. I'm one of them, so I know about it, called Will Meditation and Yoga Really Change Your Life? And here are 25 people who have 25 years, most of them, behind them of, of practice. And um, the kinds of things that they say, this changed, and these are just the same. And what I find through all of them is people's personalities don't much change, you know. If I go back and I go to a college reunion, which is coming on 50 years now, um, they look older, but they sound the same, you know, and they're the same kind of personalities, and the people who are like this are like that, and the people who are like that are like that. And, um, and I'm like myself. Um, but I think... Uh, I think I make better decisions more of the time, and I think I'm kinder. I think that that I'm sure happened. Uh, and also kinder to myself when I don't make such good decisions. Uh, more tolerance. So maybe the bottom line is more compassionate, which would be good. If that was the only thing that ever happened to anybody, it would be good. So let's start from where we left off last week. The, the question was how uh, we talked about uh, our shared awareness that when we're reason, when I, when we are reasonably at ease and um, clear seeing, that uh, the natural impulse of human beings is kindness and goodness. Uh, I don't think I actually became kind over the over the years, the essay that I wrote in that book begins with a conversation that, a report of a conversation that my husband and I have from time to time. You know, people sitting at a breakfast table that have been sitting together for a long time, they recycle the same conversation after a while. <laughs> and every once in a while, just like that, he'll say to me, so um, what do you think happened to you from these 25 years of meditation practice? It's just a question, you know. Uh, and I'll say, I, got, I became kind. And he says, you're always kind. And I said, well, I got kinder. <laughs> and uh, then I, you know, I'll say something like, you want to hear how or in what ways. And mostly, I don't actually think that he does. It's just a little conversation. <laughs> and it's a, I, I actually think he means it as a compliment because then he gets to say you were always, you know, I like you as much as I ever did. It's kind of a hidden compliment. Or, um, but there are ways in which I became kinder, and I think principally among them is I'm more alert to the times that I am not. I am more sensitive to, to what's going on, more sensitive to the nuances of my own heart intention and more uncomfortable when my own heart intention isn't good, and therefore more likely to fix it up faster. That's maybe the whole of, um, the whole of practice. But um, what we ended up with last week is how do you fix it up faster? What are the ways that you fix it up when you know it's not good? Uh, I thought if I had to make a, a, a title for what I was talking about today, I would call it the incorruptibly loving heart. Isn't that a great title? <laughs> I love that. Uh, it's a line out of the Messiah, actually. It's a, one of the descriptions of uh, the perfect heart, incorruptible, the incorruptible loving heart. Remember last week we talked about that image of um, the metaphor of the TV screen that they now have where you could be watching one football game and push a button and see the little football game over here, what's actually happening in the Army-Navy game while you're watching Penn State play somebody else over here. And that uh, we're mostly watching the world and life, and in between it, we're watching my life and my personal little drama that's going on. And that from time to time, my personal drama that's going on fills up the whole thing. 
so that I forget the whole life and what's going on. I actually, it could be even not only my personal drama fills up the whole screen, but one piece of my personal drama fills up the whole entire screen, so I forget the rest of my drama, not to speak of the whole world and wars and famines and other things that I could pay attention to. But this one slight that why my one particular person said to me now fills up the whole entire screen. And that maybe that those kinds of sort of glitches of seeing are not... Uh, uh, are not so undesirable as they might sound. Oh, that sounds so weird. Sounds like, well, let me say it again. It sounds like the best kind of a mind that to, to have would be the mind that stays absolutely locked on the big picture all the time, that doesn't get stuck in the little drama, and certainly doesn't get caught in the minute trivia of the little drama. But maybe it's the getting caught and then getting uncaught that makes the heart kinder in the end. I found this week um, an old journal. I was just looking for something nice to write in for today. And I found a journal that I began 10 years ago, actually 10 years ago this month, and wrote about a third of it, and the rest of it was empty. So I said, oh, okay, I'll use this journal. And I found that in the beginning of that journal, here it is, in the beginning of that journal I'd written in the flyleaf um, uh, a verse from Leonard Cohen, the poem Anthem. And the verses, Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Isn't that good? So I decided I'd start this one that same way. It didn't get any better. I don't have a better one ten years later. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And the other poem, by uh, it's a verse from a song, a Leonard Cohen one again. Even when it all goes wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. How do you do that? How do you do that in this world? How do you get up in the morning and read the paper? How do you get phone calls from your sister-in-law that you don't like? How do you get... Uh, the news that two of your teeth have to get extracted. I mean, how do you do anything? How do you uh, deal with your child that says whatever they say <laughs> that you didn't feel like hearing, <laughs> which is a lot? How do you actually get motivated to make a difference in the world and not resigned? You not give up, not get cynical. How do you get motivated without getting mad? That seems to me the very tricky question. How do you see other perspectives, not your point of view? See that little screen that blows up and you're seeing the whole of the world through, I am seeing the whole of the world through the perspective of my little life and how it affects me, not how it affects other people. You know, when you read, um, when you read news in different parts of the world. It's tremendously interesting to me always to buy local newspapers when I travel because the front page news is what's happening there. And you see the world starts there. The world starts in the valley of the Dordogne for people who live in Bordeaux, you know, and then everything is out from there. You know, the world starts wherever your particular body is and your particular family is and then everything else is peripheral. Do you remember those... Uh, I think there was there was Steinberg covers to the New Yorker. Do you remember them? We have a, a map of the United States starting from New York City, and in between the George Washington Bridge and the Pacific Ocean is nothing. It's like a little. I think there's a little zigzag that says Rocky Mountains, <laughs> and then a coastline, and then Hawaii. But that's it. You know, everything ends there. So how do you see it from other perspectives? One of the ways, I think, and this has to do with the practice of mindfulness, is if the mind is not too overburdened with confusions. I thought about, I thought about it a lot. Even before today, I couldn't have orchestrated that better of having the rumble of the heating machine going for most of the time that we were meditating. Because then when it went off and it was so quiet, they, ah. When the life is simpler, things become more clear. People go on retreat here. I go on retreat. 
And the second or third day in retreat, no matter where I am, doing what practice, all of a sudden, is like pieces of my life that I have not been able to work out or that have seemed such a thorny problem, all of a sudden, they're not. All of a sudden, I think to myself, ah, that's the way you do that. And I didn't have to figure it out. It just, I see a number of people, you don't have to figure it out. All of a sudden, ah. A friend, my friend Nancy calls that a blinding flash of the obvious. You know, that <laughs> it was right there. Is that great? I love that. It's a blinding flash of the obvious. It was right there, but you don't see it until uh, all of a sudden the dust settles and ah, there it is. I read, um, <laughs> I read the movie reviews in the New Yorker every week. So uh, just to see what's happening, there's a new movie in, uh, opened in New York. It's called The Story of the Weeping Camel. So I, did anybody see that? You saw it, Marty. Is it great? It's fabulous. That's what they said. Where did you see it? Uh, it's not over Berkeley, but it's playing, I think, in Central Valley. It's playing at the Rafael. Yeah. Ah. It's playing in Mill Valley. Then it's probably playing in Santa Rosa at the Roxy. I'll have to look for that. Okay. Set in the Gobi Desert, this film about a family of nomadic herders has a satisfying documentary appeal. The story about a camel that after a difficult delivery refuses to nurse her own colt, and the ageless methods the Mongolian shepherds used to right the situation is blessedly simple. There's little use of dialogue. Instead, the filmmakers, two Munich film school students, linger on the everyday tending of the livestock and the herder's astonishingly calm domestic life. The movie, an authentic and warm experience, details a peacefulness that's purely comforting. Does that sound like it, Marty? Yeah. The ah. <laughs> Nancy says, ah, <laughs> let's go. But what, what are the words there that appeal to you? Blessedly simple. Purely comforting. Astonishingly calm domestic life. Does anybody here have an astonishingly calm <laughs> domestic life? You know, I just, my children are grown. I live in the country. I live only with one person. I don't think I have an astonishingly calm <laughs> domestic life. I have a fax machine. I have two telephone numbers. I have an email. I have a mailbox. Uh, I, you know, I have neighbors. They're not close even, but, and it's not astonishingly calm. I don't watch TV. But still, it's not astonishingly calm, or regular, or simple. It's complicated. And there's something, when you just read that astonishingly calm, yes, where do they do that? How can I bring that? So people come on retreat, and I, I often say to people in the beginning of the retreat, when we start with instructions, do this, do that, sit this long, walk that long, put your attention here, put the attention there, I also tell people, you don't even have to do anything. If you don't do anything, if you just come here and just stay here, don't leave, and do the rules. Don't write, don't, read a, don't keep a journal, and don't read any books. Get up when the bell rings, sit, walk, sit, walk, and eat, and just in those times. You don't even have to do anything. Sit, daydream if you want, whatever. If you just have this astonishingly simple life, in a few days, the mind settles itself down, and in the blinding flash of the obvious, we know what's true. That making a fuss, fighting about things, agitates the, what might be a peaceful heart, and it's not a good choice. So in the middle of that film review, having read that, I'm going to go see it. I'll look for it now. I also saw Fahrenheit 9-11. How many people here saw it? Okay. It's astonishing. Um, not simple. Uh, the, um, the review I read that found some fault with it said um, it doesn't present two sides to the situation. It doesn't. 
It's uh, not meant to be a documentary in that way. Michael Moore sees himself as a political satirist and uh, a commentator on the political scene. Um, I actually had trouble standing up at the end of the movie and going out, didn't you? You know? Um, it's quite overwhelming. Um, I think you should see it. Um, I noticed yesterday, I read the reviews. I'm not going to tell you about the movie. You know what it's about. Um, maybe I'll tell you one thing about it. But I read the reviews yesterday in... Uh, I read the reviews in the New York Times on Monday. Uh, I, I read the lead story the story, which was on the front page, that in fact it had broken the records for uh, a documentary ever. Uh, it had broken it in the first weekend ever. Uh, and it had shown on about 800 screens nationwide where the two runner-up films for top films of the weekend had opened in nearly 3,000 movie theaters, each of them. So it was three times at least as hard to get to see it. And uh, I went at 11 o'clock in the morning, and I bought my tickets the day before so I could get in. So I think a lot of people want to see it. But when I, when I read the review, so I, I read the review in the New York Times, uh, which was on the front page. I was someplace yesterday where there was a Wall Street Journal, so I looked for the review on that page on Monday as well. And there was nothing on the front page. But you know, on the front page on the Wall Street Journal, they have a list of stories on the inside. At the very end of the list on the bottom of the page was a notice that it had broken records and that there was an article inside. Inside, on a very back page on the bottom, which is where they buried the story, was that story. And it had nothing about the content of the film. It was about what a bad business move it was for Disney to have not uh, to have refused to open it because uh, Miramax is going to make so much money on it. So, I, and I and I was just thinking about it from the point of view of everybody looks with their eyes. I remember my 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 teacher Joseph Goldstein saying, "A pickpocket looks at a room full of people and sees only pockets." You know that you see what you are looking for, uh, and you see through that lens. And the reason that I'm telling you that is it caused me to think about through what lenses am I seeing? I, you know, I, I, I think to myself, well, I know the lens that the Wall Street Journal is seeing through, but what lens am I seeing through? And in what way could I not be seeing a piece of the picture, any picture, not just that picture, because of the lens? What are the parameters of my personal lens? I'm still thinking about that. That's part of... It, that got me to say, well, of the five spiritual powers, I wanted to start by talking about mindfulness, because mindfulness really is a way of examining the ways in which we make views into truths and seeing things past the, the view and the decision we make about them and seeing things for what they are. I want to tell you that for me, this is just my one editorial piece about the movie, if you saw it or if you do see it. There are tremendously stunning scenes. There are horrifying scenes. That it's in, it, there are scenes where you have to look away. The scenes of the devastation of, of the bombing of Iraq, um, the recapitulation of shock and awe. There's, there are scenes you can't look at there that are terrible. Um, there's a scene at, near the very end of a meeting of corporate leaders uh, having what looks like a breakfast meeting somewhere, talking about how uh, business is now going to pick up as all, all these people are people with businesses that have um, uh, profited, from profited from the war and are involved in Iraq in one way or another, oil or uh, the rebuilding of it, and someone uh, giving a presentation to them and talking about, well, it's good now, but it's going to get much better as things continue. And it is so clear that 
the villain really is not this person or that person, but the villain always is greed, hatred, and delusion. And really, I think to myself, under it, the villain is always greed and always has been. Actually, when I think about it, you know, the Buddha said it was greed, hatred, and delusion. But I, I, I actually am coming more and more to think it's greed. It's um, that uh, it's, uh, the, the insatiable sense that people have sometimes that they need something that causes them to make other people enemies, to not recognize them as, as part of their family of human beings, that greed is the central motivating push. You know, there's been some study, somebody did this, uh, of asking people randomly, of different ki- people in different kinds of uh, financial levels, do you, you know, do you think you're financially secure? How much more would you need to be financially secure? Or are you financially secure? And came out with some fun. I don't remember, so I can't cite this study. But what they found is that people more or less universally said, if I had 10% more than what I had now, I'd be okay. They said people with a lot of money, a lot of money. Happened to me recently talking to somebody said, well, you know, you know, because of this and that and my cash flow and other kinds of things, 10% more, I'd have enough. Like, when is enough, you know? We have so much more stuff than everybody, you know? I think that the cleaning out of the drawers and pleasure of me is I divest myself of some stuff. I think of who could use this stuff, who could I give this to? Uh, 10% more, there's a lust that comes up always uh, around, I need this. And uh, the, great, the great pleasure of discovering about lusts, that they're empty. That uh, one, of the, one of the practices that most interests me uh, in um, when you talk about spiritual practice is it's the practice of renunciation. And in the largest sense, I think of myself, uh, you know, people talk about renunciates in the Buddhist tradition of people who have renounced the world, people who have become monks and nuns. So you renounce all worldly goods and you take on a life in which you don't own anything except your robes and your bowl and your slippers and your razor, your, your, your sandals and your razor for shaving your head. And um, I think that's it. Uh, so you don't own anything, and you don't accumulate stuff. And uh, the rules for being a renunciate are uh, um, include not taking a meal after after midday, not eating after midday, um, other kinds of rules about not not pampering the senses, not adorning oneself. Well, if you're just wearing robes, you're not going to be putting on makeup (laughs) and uh, jewelry and accumulating makeup and jewelry in a big wardrobe. I remember years ago uh, when when Jack had just come back from uh, his period of time as a monk in Asia and begun to... uh, and took off his robes, became a lay person again and began teaching... He talked about his time as a monk, <clears throat> that he had had dreams about tie-dyeing the robes. <laughs> that, it, 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 that it's so hard to be just like everybody else, you know. I, did you ever hear him say that? He said, you know, I was such a bells and gongs hippie, you know, and a beads, and all of a sudden here I am in robes, you know, I had dreams about tie-dyeing. But, um, you know, we each want to show up in something that nobody else has been wearing and look distinctive and be remembered in some way distinctively. How hard it is. Man, in here, you're a monkey. Give up your name. You give up your possessions. You give up your name. Um, but I, and, and in a certain way, I could, uh, I, I could and do often think to myself, the real renounce that I think is central to my practice is I want to renounce um, I want to renounce ill will that's it I want to renounce ill will and grudge I can't renounce anger arising 
because it will, you know, it just does. Somebody does something to you and you think, ah, how could they have done that? And then after that, I can either be mad at them and think, how could they have done that? Next time I see them, I'll let them know how I feel about it. Maybe I'll write a letter. Or I could let it go. I don't have a choice about the reflexive response. Something happens, anger arises. I have a choice, I think, about what I choose to keep in the middle of my screen and not. And I think about mindfulness practice and one of the exact immediate Um, what would you call it, benefits of mindfulness practice being the possibility of seeing that there is moment to moment the choice of freedom. I could go here, I could continue to consolidate this anger and grudge and be writing my retaliatory story, uh, or not. I could put it down. Not every gauntlet thrown into the ring requires getting picked up, I tell myself. You could go with this. It's very juicy, this story, because you were right, and they were wrong. And it's all the better if you were right. You know, sometimes if I were wrong, and they, then it's a little more complicated. But if I was right, and they were wrong. It's all the more reason to... Um, but that just makes... It just recreates such a drama in which there's an I who was right and a not-I who was wrong and an animosity and a lack of sense of we're all this in, in this together and we are all connected as human beings. So I want to talk about what, what, what essentially allows, what are the ways in which we keep the mind so that it's seeing the whole story, not just the biased view, the view through the business eye, or the view through this eye, or the view through the whatever eye. Which eye do I have? So I, I, I read something yesterday that uh, cleaning a drawer actually found a story that I hadn't remembered. I read this uh, four years ago. It's a story that Philip Moffat, one of my colleagues here, told in an article in the Yoga Journal. I'd forgotten this story, um, but I would like to call this how you would see if you were seeing with your whole heart. He he was reporting on an article he saw in the New York Times about uh, how, uh, this is in the year 2000, Germany renamed a military base to honor a World War II Army sergeant. This particular sergeant, Anton Schmidt, an Austrian serving in the German Army, saved more than 250 Jews from extermination. He disobeyed his superior officers and helped these men, women, and children escape by hiding them and supplying them with false identification papers. Sergeant Schmidt was executed by the Nazis for his acts. Sergeant Schmidt's actions reveal the wonderment. This is now uh, Philip talking about this. Reveal the wonderment and pain of what it means to realize one's true nature. While in prison, waiting to be executed, Schmidt wrote to his wife of the horror of seeing children beaten as they were herded into ghettos to be shot. And this is, quote, Sergeant Schmidt talking to his wife in the letter. You know how it is, he said, with, you know how it is with my soft heart. I could not think and had to help them. These words capture the sudden blossoming of spiritual maturity brought on by a challenge we would all rather never have to face. See, that I couldn't think. I had to help them. You know, because if you think to yourself, if Sergeant Schmidt had thought to himself, if I do this, that's likely to happen, that I'll likely get caught, or I'll likely be executed, or my family will have to do without me. Said, But I couldn't think. I had to help them. So another letter he wrote, at the end of that letter, he wrote, I merely behaved as a human being, he wrote in his last letter to his wife. And then Philip is saying, each of us can only pray that we too can behave as a human being, quote unquote, when we encounter the challenges that lie in our life's path. So what do you do to behave as a human being? I like to think that what he means is behaving as a human being whose uh, mind is clear, because then their heart would be accessible. If you see what's happening, you cannot not cry. If 
you look at that, if you look at the movie, if you go see Fahrenheit 11, 9-11, if you look at what's happening in the war, if you look at even a piece of the movie, not even the whole business of what are we doing in the war, but um, the pictures of Flint, Michigan, and why it is so <coughs> devastatingly poor with such high unemployment. Could just show that little segment of the movie. If you really looked at that, and we said, wait a minute, why is this happening in Flint, Michigan? How is how I vote or how I live related to what's going on in Flint, Michigan? There's a line from Gandhi when he's, where he said, before I do any single act, I think to myself, what are the implications of this act on the poorest person in the whole world? Imagine if you thought that before you did anything. I don't think that before I do everything. But you know what I do think? This happened to me once. And it's this a very small event. Maybe it'll seem small to you. It seems big to me. But anyway, I'll tell you the event. And then you see if there's something in your life that it sparks. Um, I like to think that I'm reasonably generous and reasonably turned, tuned in about concerns of the planet. And I hope I am. I said a long time ago in some uh, teacher meeting that among the criteria, uh, uh, someone was asking what are the criteria for uh, choosing a spiritual teacher. And I said I would want to know if my teacher recycled. And everybody laughed at me. <laughs> but I would. You know? <laughs> I mean, uh, it's important to me. But I, w I was in Dharamsala in uh, 1995 or six. Dharamsala is, it's, there's a lot of poverty in Dharamsala, a lot of poverty in India. And I was walking down the street one day, uh, and a very young woman with an infant, with a child on her hip, uh, in a, you know, carried, carried in a sling on her hip, very young woman, very beautiful, passed me by on the street, Indian young woman. Uh, she hardly looked out of her teens, and she's the mother of this child. And I looked at her because she was so beautiful. And I also noticed that uh, her skin was, that she was dirty. It's dusty, the streets of Dharamsala. It's very dusty. So the clothing was dusty, and just everything about her and the child. That there's a level of, um, I thought to myself, this woman hasn't taken a bath in her life, probably. Because where would you take a bath in Dharamsala? There's no river. There's, there's not a river. It's not by the ocean. You can't swim. It's inland. You have to have a bathtub to take a bath or a shower. If to, really, I wasn't even thinking about a shower. I was thinking, sit in a bath. If I, I guess it, it was my sense that if she came to my door, I would draw a bath for her. I would put her in a hot bath. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't a derogatory thought at all. It was a caretaking thought, you know. I wished so much for the pleasure of, a, of clean water for this person to take a bath in. And I realized how precious it is to get in a bathtub that's clean and how little of the world gets in a bathtub that's clean ever and how often I do. And since that time... I didn't stop taking baths as a, you know, I didn't come home and say, now I'm not taking baths, I'm conserving. <laughs> I take baths. But every time I draw the bath, I think about the woman in the Dharamsala. And I wish that she's well. You know, I think about her often. If not every time I take a bath, often when I take a bath. Ten years old, I wonder how, ten years ago, and now our baby is. And that particular woman passed my vision at a certain time when my mind was open to see her. And I thought about bathtubs and clean water. I think that if there could be a moment in everybody's mind that something goes in, just make, kind of makes it in zing, so that something about us is converted forever. One person at a time. Maybe she would be my person when my life is over. When somebody says, what was the most significant conversion experience of your life? Maybe that's going to be one of them. I saw a woman in Dharamsala once who I wished I could give a bath, who I wished had access to clean water. Is that clear enough that it was just 
Okay. What could else be? You know, you look at pictures sometimes of, of, of babies, and maybe if I had seen a person with a baby with a bloated belly, it would have had the same impact. I would have thought every time I sat down to eat a meal of that baby. I think, though, that there are moments in which human beings, because their defenses are down, see clearly. I think that I, that, I, that, that happened to me in Dharamsala because it was such an extraordinary place to be and such a high attention place. You know, it's not easy to be in India. You really need to pay attention all the time to levels of what you eat and because it's easy to get sick if you eat the wrong kinds of foods. And, and it was very exciting to be there with a delegation of Buddhist teachers and going to see the Dalai Lama, so very high alertness. So maybe that was why I noticed that person. I certainly have seen poor people in all kinds of difficult circumstances before. So I, I, I guess that fell into my mind because I'm thinking with, with high vigilance and a balanced heart, people get converted, which is what mindfulness is. It's high vigilance and a converted, which converts the heart. Because what you see with the high vigilance is the degree of suffering in the world inherent in just the fact of incarnation and the difficulties of keeping yourself and your mind and your body comfortable and the ways in which that is worse when greed, hatred, and delusion are added to the mix. It would be hard to live in a world, even an idyllic world, I think, because we would be parted from what we loved and parted from our own, especially if it were an idyllic world and we were comfortable and loved each other and really were able to make strong bonds with people and celebrate with people and enjoy each other's talents. It would still be sad to leave it. There's a story about the Buddha. Um, someone sent it to me this week with the uh, citation, I, I don't have it exactly at hand, of... Uh, the Buddha's chief disciples dying. Uh, two of them died before he did. And him looking out at the assemblage and saying, you know, it's empty without them here. And here is the Buddha with the profound understanding that everything that arises passes away. And still, when what's dear to you passes away, it's empty. You know, it's full of other people, but there's a place in your heart that that person lived in. <coughs> And that place is empty, and you know about it. In the most idyllic circumstances, there is greed, and there is old age, sickness, and death, and we lose each other. To compound it with the, the, the sequelae of greed, hurting people, wanting what isn't ours. So I think to myself that the renunciation is the renouncing of things that cause suffering. Renouncing of ill will for sure, because that causes suffering in my own heart. And renouncing greed when I see it in myself, because it creates a certain of Ill, amount of ill will on the people who have what I don't have, or caused me not to have what I have because they have it, or have something that I think I need, so now I'm jealous. None of those feelings feel good in me. Suppose I didn't have any greed. I would have entirely... Mudita, about other people's good fortune, you know? Somebody else has something, gets something, I don't know, you know, I actually think I have everything I want, but I could imagine. You know, if one of my colleagues calls me and said, you know what, I just got called to be on Oprah with my book. <laughs> I might have a little bit of, uh, I might have a little bit of envy. <laughs> My book has just gotten on Oprah's best read. <laughs> you know, I wish I, you know, what I wish I would have is a kind of a heart that would say, yay, great for you, wonderful, go for it. And no greed or envy should arise in me. I'm going to have to do a lot more work in this lifetime until <laughs> I get there. So what I hope in the interim is it'll arise in me and I'll cop to it. I'll tell them about it. 
I'll say, you know what? That's fabulous. I wish it had happened to me. But second to it happening to me, I'm glad it happened to you. While you are there, you could flash my book. <laughs> Something. I'm, if I am honest, I'll keep myself straight. It'll be okay. I'm actually, I'm actually pretty sure that if I died in the next minute, I would say as my final death sentence, tell the truth, it'll be all right. That, that probably, probably is going to do it. I'm probably going to construct a better one if I get a chance. But. So we talk about mindfulness and put it in the context. There are five things, five components to the group that the Buddha named as the five spiritual faculties. He said these particular five faculties, if you really, really develop them, they become spiritual powers. They activate, they self-activate just spontaneously anytime the heart and the mind are disturbed. So imagine, it's like, a, it's like that magic backpack that I talked about before we started to meditate, that you could take with you an automatic self-activating kit of concentration, mindfulness, faith, wisdom, and energy. The, um, the traditional list starts with faith. And there's a way in which there's a teaching, James says it quite beautifully, where faith leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. And it makes a lot of sense. Faith leads to, I don't remember the way that uh, James actually does it. I think he ends up with concentration. But I've been working on this list for about a year now because I'm trying to write about it. And I can actually make that list work five ways. I can start it with any one of them and have it go to this, to this, to this, to this, to this. And what I decided after a year of moving them that way is not that it was arbitrary, but that actually they all... Um, they, each of them impacted all the others. They all uh, potentiated, were potentiators of each of the others. For instance, starting today with mindfulness, just because I think it's the, the most clear way to talk about how do you keep the screen this way instead of this way, open with a whole view instead of this view. There's a, there's, it's quite clear to me that if I am mindful, moment to moment, knowing what's happening, um, not, not closing my uh, awareness to any part of the field, which is hard because you don't know what you're closing your awareness to. Some sixth grader once asked me this great question. I was teaching them about paying attention. I call it, was calling it that because it's a better word than mindfulness, for, especially for sixth graders. Uh, actually, for everybody, but for sixth graders, for sure. I was saying it's just about paying attention to everything and really paying good attention. And he said, here is my problem. I don't know that I'm not paying attention when I'm not paying attention. <laughs> So, and that's true for every of us. We don't know, or we think we're paying attention to everything, but how do I know what's not in my field of vision? I, uh, I don't notice a lot. There, there are things that, that preoccupy my, my attention. I'm absent-minded in a certain way. This might be a peculiar thing to admit for a mindfulness teacher. But if I, but I have carried around a, a, a card that I wanted to mail for two days now, my car, in various ways, right on the dashboard, right here, right there. Finally, I mailed it before I came this morning because as soon as I get in my car with the card to mail, I start thinking about what I'm going to talk about in class this morning or what's going on or what I now understand that I didn't understand yesterday, which are way more compelling to me than mailing this card. And short of putting it in my teeth, I will ride right past the mailbox. You know, just, so, what do I, so I'm not paying attention to everything. My, my husband teases me all the time about, so, you know, where is the mindfulness? Well, I am paying attention, but not to that, not to the minutia of my life. But, but, and, you know, by, by and large, it's not a problem because I mail it eventually. But uh, what else am I not noticing is what I am thinking about. So if I were really mindful, paying attention clearly moment to moment to moment to moment to moment, what happens is that your mind becomes more concentrated. So concentration will develop from moments of mindfulness. Also, if I am mindful and present, it means 
that I'm not really squandering energy or losing it in distractedness. So my energy will grow. If I'm mindful, I'm attentive to what's happening. It's usually uh, I'm able to do something or figure something out, which gives you a big burst of energy. Oh, look, I just figured that out. That, that the blinding flash of the obvious moment when you figure out something, you suddenly feel enthusiastic, don't you? You say, oh, that's what I should do. And the amount of energy that the mind was using to kind of struggle with it um, unconsciously or consciously and not getting anywhere is now liberated. Oh, that's what I can do. So mindfulness leads to concentration. Mindfulness leads to energy. Mindfulness leads to wisdom. And see, all of a sudden, you see how things are. You say, ah, you see, it is changing. It wasn't the whole of the story. If I'm mindful of... If I'm really mindful of the mind state and of what's going on and of my thoughts and of the fact that I am now cataloging thoughts of grievance to, to bolster up my case about why I should continue to have ill will about this person, and I'm also mindful of the pain it's causing me, that amount of mindfulness will cause me to stop doing that because I suddenly have the wisdom that... Uh, Ill will just breeds more ill will, and I am making myself uncomfortable with it. The wisdom that I am tying the knot tighter by being, uh, by by allowing myself to continue in that way, it's reminiscent of the Buddha's teaching about if you've got stabbed by a dagger, or if you stab yourself by accident, you pull out the dagger. You don't keep on stabbing yourself with it. You know, that that uh, if someone hurts you and you get mad. There's no reason to continue to hurt yourself by fomenting thoughts of anger, which are very painful. You could stop, and you could do something about it. does not mean, just in case anybody thinks, it doesn't mean not responding to challenges, but it, it means to me responding to them in a way that's free of ill will. doesn't mean not strongly. Sometimes people think, aha, I have to put up with everything. No, I don't have to put up with anything. That means I can't take a strong stand. I can take a strong stand. Do it with ill will. Ill will does not make the case any better on the other side. Nobody gets it better if it comes with ill will. You know, if it's, suppose you got a letter and it said important, filled with ill will. Would you? Would you, would you, you know, if I get mail and it says urgent, I open it, but not if it says filled with ill will in it. But, but if it said urgent, if I want to say to somebody, sweetheart, it is urgent that I talk to you about something. But I say, sweetheart, it is urgent that I talk to you about something. It, then I can say, you know, it was terribly hurtful to me that you said this and that. But I already have said, sweetheart, it's terribly urgent. So it means this is not coming with ill will. So maybe they could listen. Also, it feels better for me to say, sweetheart, I have urgent that I talk to you. So I remind myself that I have another context for this person other than the grievance that they just produced in me, like a whole lifetime around it. <laughs> so I mean, the sweetheart is a good remembering from remembrance for myself. Also, mindfulness leads in that case to faith, also, because it always it's always true that if I pay attention. I pay uh, that I see the suffering that I cause with um, reactive behavior and the peace that's possible if I don't do it. And the faith that that is always incontrovertibly true. It will be better off if I pay attention and tell the truth. So before, when I just made that up in the moment, I said, if I die this next moment, I suddenly realized, may it not happen, that I'm dying in this moment. I'm going to say, tell the truth, it'll be fine. That's really what's liberating. I could have actually said that as be mindful. But tell the truth is the same as be mindful. Tell the truth. It's the same as saying, be here now. Just say what's true. Saying what's true is never a problem. If you say what's really true, you know, at another time with more time, we'll talk about the ways in which we say things in conversation that aren't true, like you always are inconsiderate. That's not true. Nothing is always true. You know, 
you never listen to my point of view. That's probably not true either. You know, that, that those are editorial opinions on current, you know. But to just say what's true in this moment, how I feel is. So there's a uh, maybe this is a good way. This is out of the Anapanasati Sutta. This is a sermon on uh, mindfulness established through attention to breath. So for the people who have never come to a meditation class before, I hope you noticed this morning, and maybe you all have, and this is just your first time here, but I hope you noticed that in the instructions that I gave for mindful practice together, I said something about attention to the breath, but not always attention to the breath, to the body, to thoughts coming and going, to the sound of the sound of the room, to the sound of silence, to thoughts about who in our lives we were thinking about with particular prayers or or intentions today. And really, I, I, I not only did it because it I did it because that's what mindfulness is. It's paying attention to all the things that are happening now. It's not paying attention to breath. Sometimes when people go to beginning meditation practices, especially mindfulness ones where we really do suggest the breath as uh, an object of attention, people have the idea that it's breath awareness. It's not breath awareness. It's awareness of what's going on. Breath is a really good thing to pay attention to because everybody is breathing. You're always breathing in or out. It's more accessible as a physical sensation than anything else because you could say, let's pay attention to heartbeat, but you don't always feel that. Or feel attention to the buzzing in your body of um, the energy in your body, but sometimes the body's really quiet. Or pay attention to the sense of hardness of against your back or your bottom or your feet on the floor, different kinds of uh, pullings or pushings or just... Uh, vibrations in your body, but sometimes you feel them, sometimes you don't, and they aren't regular. There's a regularity about breath in and out and in and out, which gives you something changing to pay attention to that's always changing, but reasonably familiar. You don't sort of breathe in and then in, breathe in and out. It's reasonably predictable. <laughs> And you don't breathe in and out and then stop for five minutes. It's reasonably predictable. So the, it's the predictable, the predictableness of it, like being at the seashore and hearing the waves. Everybody says, oh, I go to the beach, I calm down. There's something that happens physiologically with that. It really does calm down the mind. And it's always changing. It's not the same. This breath is long, this breath is short. It's a little interesting. And it's also true that for some, so it's a very good, a very good focus of attention to begin to settle down the mind. Then everything happens. Body awareness has happened. Thoughts come and go. Moods come and go. And really, the practice of mindfulness is attention to what is happening now, not exclusively anything, everything. Having said that, there is the Anapanasati Sutta, the teaching of paying attention to the breath exclusively, which some people find as a very wonderful, ongoing life practice. Because it's also true that although paying attention to all the realms of experience is one way of paying attention and of waking up to the truth, it's also true that you could pick just the breath and stay with it. I love the idea that just by staying with the breath, you can see the three characteristics of experience revealed just in the breath. The first characteristic, that things are always changing, that everything's impermanent. Here's a breath in, there it's, now it's out. The in-breath is gone, the out-breath is happening. Now that breath is gone, that breath is never going to get breathed by you again. A zillion other breaths by you, but that one has come and gone. That breaths come and go. There's a way of really directly experiencing the truth of impermanence, 
of constant change just by paying attention to the breath. There's a way of experiencing the truth of the suffering that's involved in holding on, just with the breath. If I sat here and the breath went out, and I said, oh, this is so comfortable, look at this breath out. I'm just going to stay like this forever. I'd be uncomfortable. Actually, I'd die if I could stay that way. But there's, here, here it comes. I can't hold on to this. Then you breathe in. Oh, that's great. I'll just stay this way. But you can't. It's changing. It's got to go out. Holding on to anything is uncomfortable. Things come and go. You can learn that just breathing and paying attention to the breath. The fact that things are inextricably linked, that everything has to do with everything else, that everything is interdependent in all of creation. I breathe in and out, and you also, because the trees breathe in and out, and they breathe out what we breathe in, and we breathe out what they breathe in, which is why we need to keep this planet green enough. Otherwise, living beings won't be able to breathe. And there's a way sometimes when I'm sitting that I actually think about that, because I'm aware when I sit, I actually try to sit up straight and feel the breathing and have the, the particular attention to the fact that I don't decide to breathe. There's not an I in me that says, okay, Sylvia, take a breath, unless I'm demonstrating something, like in a yoga class or something. But if I just sit here, my physiology interacting with the fact that there's oxygen still in the biosphere, my physiology interacting with the whole biosphere and this particular muscle of my diaphragm just pushes breath in and out of it all the time without any direction for me. And it couldn't happen. My diaphragm could do that as much as it wanted to if there was no air in the biosphere. There was no oxygen. It wouldn't work. If I were underwater, it wouldn't work. I need to be here. The biosphere needs to be here. This diaphragm needs to be viable. There needs to be enough trees. And then that happens. And I realized that this same oxygen that we're passing back and forth, the trees and I now, was keeping Mozart alive and Beethoven and Columbus. And forever and ever, we're just passing the same oxygen around and around forever and ever. And you get to, I get to have such a sense of how we're passing it all around forever and ever, not so far from passing the water around forever and ever, and how, how I use the water that's in my house has to do with how many other people on the planet will get to use water in what ways, and how what I do makes a difference somewhere else. But very much the, my personal sense of, you know, we, we hear sometimes about if a butterfly flaps its wings and New Jersey, and there's a typhoon off Indonesia six months later, and the butterfly is a part of the typhoon off the coast of Indonesia. It didn't make the whole typhoon, but maybe it's part of the wind that made the whole typhoon in Indonesia. And there's some way in which each breath in and out from me when I'm really relaxed and paying attention to the fact that I have nothing to do with it, this breathing happens, just so hooks me in the interrelatedness of all things, which is really the, the way into understanding karma. So the Anapanasati Sutta, you could just do breath and arrive at really a complete direct awareness of all those three um, characteristics of experience spontaneously. So this is a, a, just a paragraph from the Anapanasati Sutta because uh, It talks about how mindfulness leads to all of the factors of enlightenment. So friends, uh, on whatever occasion, actually says monks, but bhikkhus, bhikshunis, friends, on whatever occasion uh, you abide contemplating the body as a body, feelings as feelings, mind as mind, and mind objects as mind objects, which are the four contemplations. 
ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness, covetousness and grief for the world, on that occasion, unremitting mindfulness is established in the meditator. Abiding thus mindful, the meditator investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. In one who investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks on a full inquiry, tireless energy is aroused. In one who has aroused energy, unworldly rapture arises. In one who is rapturous, the body and the mind becomes tranquil. In one whose body is tranquil and feels pleasure, the mind becomes concentrated. That person closely looks on with equanimity at the mind thus concentrated. This is how the four foundations of mindfulness developed and cultivated fulfill the seven enlightenment factors. I also love noticing that in that uh, list of the seven factors of enlightenment, energy and mindfulness, energy and mindfulness, and concentration are three of the factors of enlightenment. They are three of the um, spiritual faculties which develop, become spiritual powers. Um, wisdom and energy are two of the paramitas. They're overlapping lists. You know, they didn't write down what the Buddha said for, uh, no one wrote it down for several hundred years. You think about how it got passed down word of mouth, word of mouth. And I think that's why they must have made mnemonic devices and lists because it's easier to remember the seven this and the three this and the four that and the five that. Edie. Um, Sylvia, the talk you've given today reminds me so much of the truth-telling process. And you had mentioned that you were... Oh, I did. I forgot that... So, Edie, why don't you get up and tell about the truth-telling project? I couldn't have set it up better with my... It's extraordinary, but I... But I and I forgot. I told Edie yesterday I would let her tell so the truth-telling. I told her today I would let her do it. And I forgot. It's just the same like the postcard. <laughs> so, I just want to take a moment to tell you about this project. The truth-telling project. It's so perfect today that I can speak about this. This is a project which Daniel Ellsberg and a group of us have initiated, including many people from Spirit Rock and in the um, Spirited Action group, and, and really brings together, I think, this question we've been talking about, how can we stay present to the suffering that's going on keep an open heart, and still have the energy to act. And what uh, Dan Ellsberg and a group of us have been doing, um, Dan Ellsberg really initiated it, but it's called Courageous Whistleblowing. And it's a call to, um, I'll just read you a, a, a note of it, a phrase from the paragraph. Thanks to our First Amendment, the U.S. does not have an official secret act. Truth-telling to Congress and the public about government deception, wrongdoing, and cover-up is neither disloyal nor illegal in America. It is a courageous, effective, and patriotic way to serve our country. The time to speak out is now. So what we're doing with this project is Dan personally is speaking with people all around the country and internationally, connecting with those people who have information but who perhaps don't have the legal or financial support or moral um, community support to, to dare to speak out. 
And uh, there's another phrase here that I think is so perfect from Martin Luther King. A time comes when silence is betrayal. The emphasis of this project is really to um, break the cult of secrecy and to come back to those basic beliefs founded on the, from the Constitution that if we hear the truth, we will have the intelligence and the courage to act in a way that will be for the benefit of all beings. So I really feel that this project is embodying what we've been learning and studying and trying so hard to practice. And uh, Sunday night was the beginning, the, the kickoff for the fundraiser event given at a wonderful restaurant in um, Berkeley. And the restaurant owner has said that any, any of us who can put together a group of people who would be willing to make large donations, he will open the restaurant, give us this French feast. So um, I'm a Le Théâtre and in Berkeley. And so that's what we're doing. We're gathering together people who maybe already have given everything they can to, uh, I'm assuming, Carrie, and who would like to help with this project. Yep. So um, I think there's enough of these for everyone to have one. And you can act in whatever way suits you and follow up. Thanks, Edie. Some people have to leave. May all beings be peaceful and happy and vote. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.